What's up, guys? We're going to do this podcast. My name is Solomon Ali, at Solomon Ali NBA on Twitter. Here, joined by Ben DuBose of USA Today Sports. Ben, how are you doing? Doing well, Solomon. How are you? I've been all right. It's been a while since you came on the show, man. I think last time we had you on was October. I think I think it was it's October. It's been a while. There's been a few things that have happened since then. A few things, including the entire NBA season. Uh, what'd you yeah. think of that? What'd you think? What'd you think of this Rocket season? Success? Failure? In between? Agnostic? Like, where are you on the season? Macro success, micro mixed. Look, we know the big picture. This three-year window is about maximizing draft capital. That was the way the Rockets went into this post-James Harden, and particularly after the 2021 trade deadline. When they traded James, they left the door open. If they caught lightning in a bottle with Victor Oladipo and John Wall and Christian Wood, you could see what might happen that year. But once Christian Wood got hurt and they traded Oladipo for scraps, it was pretty obvious they were trying to salvage that pick, which they did, that became Jalen Green. And then these next two years, the last years that the Rockets really held their own draft capital, it was all about maximizing your odds. And that's pretty much what they did. They had the worst record in the league the last two years, which was basically a floor of pick five. Thankfully, they got pretty lucky with the draft lottery both of those years, didn't have to use that. This year, the second worst record, which gives them the floor of pick six after the positive coin flip to swing against the Spurs. In my opinion, that was realistically the best case scenario. They were never going to be 17 wins or worse, which is what it would have taken to beat the Pistons or beat out the Pistons in a losing sense without Cade Cunningham. So I think finishing the number two spot this year is as best as they could realistically do. Now, you know, you can point to the daily prospect development. Did they maximize Alperin Shingun, Jabari Smith Jr.? Should they have used Jalen Green off the ball more? We know all the reports that have come out about culture. Yeah, it's fair to question some of that, and perhaps that plays into why they're in a coaching search right now and why Steven Silas isn't here anymore. But at least in terms of the big picture, the macro, I think it was pretty successful, even in the convoluted tanking way that sort of defined Rockets basketball for the last three seasons. Yeah, I'll kind of put it like this. Uh, first, I'm I'm glad you like you correctly characterized that that Harden trade. Like like they didn't trade Harden with the intent to tank. They did that after they traded Oladipo, which I'm glad you did because I I always see people throwing in Jalen Green as part of that trade. It's like no, they they weren't thinking that far ahead. They that just simply wasn't the, the case. Op- they wanted the option, but they didn't commit to it at that point. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And, and like like it just bothers me when people say like oh. J- you have to count Jalen Green as part of the hard trade. No, no, you don't. No, no, you don't. That that's a that's a completely separate thing. They were the Rockets were not betting on fifty percent like odds at Jalen Green when they traded James Harden. That's not what they were doing. That they did try and and go that direction after they traded Oladipo and after they after Christian Wood got hurt. But that was an on the fly de- decision. That was not something that was intended when they made the Harden trade. I will say it was a part of the Levert versus Oladipo calculus. Not for the trade as a whole, I agree with you, but I do give them some credit for, I guess, the Levert component, because Levert was classic, I guess, high floor, low ceiling. Oladipo was the reverse. Maybe things work out medically, and you get a guy who was all-star caliber the way he was two years earlier, or he goes completely bust and you tank. I do think that was part of it. Now, some have pointed out, that 
Levert obviously had his health scare that year, but that's completely, you know, hindsight being 2020. No one went into the trade negotiations knowing that they were going to find something on the screening of Levert that basically made him unable to play the next two months. I do think that choosing Oladipo, the Jalen Green component of it, or I suppose holding your pick at that point, was a part of why Oladipo was more attractive to them than Levert. However, the overall trade in terms of did they trade James Harden for a super draft pick heavy package, thinking that it would retain their 2021 pick? No. I mean, they knew a very small part. They knew it sort of gave them that option. But yeah, the main part of the Harden trade, 90% of it was that future draft capital, which is obviously still to be determined other than Tari Eason, as far as what the value of it is. Right. Like, and I, I still, you know, even when that happened, like w- before we learned that they were actually going to go for Oladipo instead of Levert, I, I, I liked the trade. I still believe it was the right package. I still believe the draft capital was the right move because that was just an incredible amount at that time. And, you know, since then we've seen even, you know, bigger draft capitals, bigger, bigger sums of draft capital change. But at that, at that point, I think I believe it was the biggest sum traded, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, at least in modern era, that at that time it seemed to be the biggest package I've ever seen. Uh, maybe the Anthony Davis trade was uh, comes close, but anyways, like I agreed, I agreed with the trade, and I I just I thought the Lavert and Oladipo one was a little questionable. I didn't agree with that part of it, but overall, um, those first two seasons, I agree. Those first two seasons were about being a bottom team and getting draft capital. I think that last season, this season. I think that there was an opportunity for better, for better results than what we got, frankly. Like, I thought, like, I, I had them winning 30 games, and I thought they underachieved, and I thought there were several things that the coaching staff could have done to make them reach that milestone. Like, I, I thought there was, there, there was a way that this season didn't have to be as truly bad as it ended up being. It, it, I think it was ultimately going to be bad, but this bad? I, I don't know, I don't know if that's, um, if that's something that even the Rockets, you know, could have portended, I think this was something that uh, happened because they made a bunch of uh, poorly designed decisions. Uh, starting starting the year uh, with uh, with Bruno Fernando uh, mm-hmm. at center was probably you know one of those decisions, right? And you know, obviously that was only a couple games, but like that line of thinking is kind of what I'm talking about. I just thought that's kind of why Silas isn't here anymore. You know, not the co- not the culture, right? Like the culture stuff. Like I think, you know, th- to some extent, yes, it, maybe it was a li- it's a little bit fractured compared to other rebuilding situations. But I'm not sure how much more. I'm not sure if it's that mu- if it's like enough to, you know, be the difference in someone losing his job. I think really the on court performance is why Silas yeah. lost his job. You know, I don't think it was a culture thing. Yeah, I agree. And Rafael's point, Rafael Stone, that is, in his press conference, was a perfectly valid one about a lot of the culture critiques coming from people who have not been on the ground in Houston. So I think you have to take some of those with a grain of salt. When it's people from the outside that haven't spent any time, it's very easy for things to sort of take off in a game of telephone in that there being some big underlying culture issue is a sexier storyline than lots of just little things, poor tactical X's and O's decisions that add up over time. And my 
understanding as someone that is on the ground is that it's more of the latter. As you said, there's just a few things in terms of prioritizing who got minutes, what your rotations are, just little things day in, day out that were much more to the detriment of Steven Silas than any overall culture narrative. It's just those narratives sell more in the national media, especially with a team that nobody's really watching or paying much attention to. I will say this. The eco-reporting was... That made me raise my my eyebrow, because that's not someone that's from the outside. That's someone on the ground. And you know the bit about Stone butting into a practice. I was like, okay, that's that's definitely like something that's like not that should not be happening. Uh, and uh, that I'm definitely gonna keep my eye eye on the next head coaching relationship with the front office because uh, that's not that's not something that I would characterize as normal. But everything else, uh, I would say, was just kind of par for the course. Well, and I, you know, you and I are kind of on the same page about the performance. And what I would say about that, and perhaps that dovetails into our coaching discussion. I do think that in fairness to Steven Silas, that's why this marriage, as soon as they traded James Harden, was always going to have a hard time lasting and being here for the long haul. Because people forget not only was Steven Silas a first-time head coach, Raphael Stone was a first-time GM. And the reporting in Kelly's article indicates that it was very early on, either at the end of the first Stone Silas season or beginning of the second, but it was very early on in the tenure. And so I think when they hired Steven Silas, you had a veteran-laden roster, both James Harden and Russell Westbrook were on it. You had all these proven role players like P.J. Tucker, Robert Covington, and those guys, especially in the regular season, could drive the bus themselves. You could learn the boundaries on the fly if you had that type of roster. And, of course, I've asked about the timing. They hired Rafael in October, Stephen Silas in very early November 2020. And I've asked, in hindsight, were you guys planning on James Harden being here when those hires were made? Because, of course, that was when you started to hear the first whispers nationally that he might want out. And I have been told unequivocally, yes, they thought and believed they could work things out with James Harden. Now, you can argue that maybe they should have been more pessimistic, given how obviously asset-limited they were at that point. No cap space. They had given up all of their trade assets and the rush trade from one year earlier. So perhaps they should have been more pessimistic. But I do think that when they made that Silas hire, they were pretty optimistic that, worst case, you were going to have James Harden with the team. They were going to find a way to make that work. And then if you had James Harden and some veteran role players, that would give you a lot of buffer when it came to Silas and Stone learning the ropes. As opposed to when things pivoted, they lost Harden, and then within a couple of months after that, for obvious reasons, as you were just talking about, it made sense to pivot to an all-out rebuild and try and salvage your 2021 pick, which they did with Jalen Green, all of a sudden, it's like there's no adult in the room, if that makes sense. There's no one that can say, I've got this. And so all throughout the chain, the players, the coach, the GM, no one has been there, done that before in that chair. And so they're all sort of pushing the boundaries at the same time. And so I think there's destined to be a few bumps when you don't really have that voice of authority, be it veterans on the roster or at coach or GM. So there were going to be problems. And so I think that's part of why right now they're going into this search. Now they're probably going to add veterans regardless 
this offseason in free agency. But I do think that having been through those bumps, I do think that plays into why they're talking to names in this search that have a lot of experience. And it feels like, while not a given, it feels like from all the reporting that I've seen and the conversations that I've had, that ultimately the hire is going to be someone that has not just prior coaching experience, but prior head coaching experience, so that hopefully these mistakes aren't repeated starting this fall. So we're going to get back to that, but uh, like you know, you, you mentioned how like there when they made the Silas hire, like you kind of expected Harden to be there and all that stuff, and that's kind of why like when 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 Maury left. I thought the obvious high, like they were down to two candidates by that time. And I was like, okay, you got to go with JVG. You got to go with someone to steady the ship. You got to go with someone mm-hmm. who has done this before. You got to go with someone who would command a lot of respect immediately. And when they went with Silas, it's like, okay, yeah, this is kind of an exciting hire, but I still think it was the incorrect hire at that time because I thought they needed someone that not only for the team, you know, had some authority. But for the organization, could carry some credibility, and they didn't have that, you know. And like that, that's kind of why I thought, um, you know, at that point, I would have gone with JVG. Yeah, although perhaps that plays into the reporting this week from Jonathan Fagan. He had an article talking about, and of course, he's sourcing it not just from the Rockets, but talking to the agents of many of these candidates as well about the Rockets' search being more attractive, much more attractive right. in 2023 than 2020. Maybe JVG pulled out. Yeah. yeah, I think because in large part, you know, fans watching when teams go through this search are always thinking about the here and now. And specifically, what's the last I saw of the team doing the search or the coach being spoken to? And of course, in the case of the Rockets, they've been really bad the last three years. However, the people that are actually involved in the search, and it's their livelihood, they're looking at it much more about What's the future outlook? What are things going to look like one year from now, two years from now, three years from now? And so 2020, even though the Rockets were a good team then and had the NBA's longest playoff streak at the time, it was pretty clear to a lot of people around the NBA what was coming. And so I think that really tied their hands and perhaps forced them to where a guy like Steven Silas or a longtime assistant like John Lucas were the only people that they could really get at the time. As opposed to now, you've got these young prospects, you've got this salary cap room, you've got at least some future assets from Brooklyn. I know it doesn't totally offset what you've lost to Oklahoma City, but it's not like you're devoid of assets. All of a sudden, the job looks far more attractive now, even if the current roster and last season's team is a lot worse. Yeah, and, and if, you, if you guys remember at that time, like, they couldn't even get Doc Rivers and Tyron Lue in interviews, right, uh, if, if I remember correctly. Like, they, they couldn't get those guys to interview for the job, much less seriously consider coming to Houston. So, uh, I think, you know, certainly, like, when Maury left, like, it, it definitely, you know, made their hand look even worse, right, because it's like, that's a guy that carried a lot of credibility around the league, right? Like, uh, not to say that, Stone wasn't a capable assistant, but no one knew Stone. Nobody, nobody, Stone was unproven. You know, he didn't have any sort of resume or track record to go off of. And, you know, it's, it's possible that, you know, some of these, you know, head coaching candidates, once they heard that, um, you know, because apparently Maury was telling some of these candidates that, that he wasn't going to be there. Once, once they heard that Maury wasn't going to be there, um, they, they pulled their name out. You know, that, that's very possible during the interview process. And we just never, 
got reporting on it. Um, we'll never know, but ultimately, it is interesting to look back on. So, you know, we mentioned Harden a couple of times. I do want to start with him before we get into the head coaching stuff because we got this reporting from Woj uh, yesterday on a podcast. By the way, these guys are just leaking stuff on a podcast. Really annoying for like yeah, people yeah. like you and me because like we, we just miss on this stuff. Whatever. Um, okay, so this is the quote. James Harden's future is very unclear in Philly. Houston is very much in play for him, and I think a lot of this may depend on whether they make a run and win, and it's easy for him to pay long-term. It's easy to pay him long-term money, or he just wants to be in Houston. It really depends on the team's success. So first, I want to apologize uh, for this podcast basically becoming a "Will he? Won't he?" starring James Harden. But this is a yep. major story, man. Like Woj has reported on this report before. He he was actually the first to report on this Harden stuff back in Christmas. Uh, and since then, we've had reporting from multiple other outlets about this. What do you make of this, Ben? Like, is this just more smoke? Like, at this point, does this stuff, does stuff like this move the needle in your mind as to whether or not you actually believe he's coming? Or does it just become this thing where there's already so much juice there that all this other reporting really doesn't matter and it's kind of like diminishing, diminishing returns? No, I think it's still noteworthy from the perspective of, I guess, making clear that nothing substantively has changed. I do think there's some value in that because Woj's reporting dates back to Christmas. That's a long time. And so I do think even if it's nothing new, just him making clear with these comments that he's still in the same place he was a few months ago, that's noteworthy. Now, I'm not really getting too much higher based on this report, simply because my position the whole time, Solomon, has been that it's going to largely depend on what happens with the Sixers in the playoffs. Because if they win the title, or if they're right on the precipice, if they get to the NBA Finals, I have a tough time seeing James walk away. On the other hand, if they get bounced by the Celtics in round two, that's their competition, not just now, but going forward, especially if they look fairly uncompetitive in doing so, all of a sudden that looks like a pretty tricky situation, not just for Harden, but Embiid as well. Embiid's going to win MVP. He's been loyal to this point for so long. And how much can Daryl Morey really retool that roster? They don't have much in the way of assets. They have a huge contract in Tobias Harris that I'm not sure is really that desirable. It's not as if they have a lot of future draft picks that they can trade. They're not to the point of the Rockets in 2020, but they're fairly boxed in. Like, there's not a whole lot they can do. And so if it becomes crystal clear after this playoff run that they're not that close to their primary competition in the East, I could see not just Harden, but Embiid sort of looking at his future as well. And so I've always been of the mind, let's just see what happens with the Sixers in the playoffs. And then if they flame out, all of a sudden, yeah, it gets pretty interesting. And so I do think the Woj reporting today is noteworthy just from the standpoint of, you know, he is the biggest newsbreaker in the game, and it tells you that he's heard nothing in the last four months to move him from what he reported on Christmas. I do think that's significant, and since then we've had other people, including Kelly Eco and Sam Amick of The Athletic, jointly reporting what they did in March, shortly after the Rockets made their trip to Philly. Clearly they're talking to many of the same people, hearing many of the same things. I do think it's um, noteworthy for sure, but I'm not getting too excited about it because so much of it, in my opinion, is going to depend on what happens with the Sixers over the next few weeks and what narratives emerge based on their playoff performance. I will say also, from the Rockets' perspective, 
I don't think they're sweating it that much either. I've had a couple of people ask me, does this come up a lot during these coaching search interviews? Because obviously the I've been told, and I believe Jonathan has reported this as well, that the coaches are very intrigued by the salary cap room, perhaps even more so than the 2023 draft pick. Because the reality is, no matter who you draft in 2023, it's not going to help you a lot on the floor the next couple of seasons. That's just the way it goes, even with a guy like Victor Wimbanyama, and that's only 14%. Most rookies these days are just not ready to contribute to winning at 19 years old. That's just not how it works. And Rockets fans can look to Jalen Green and Jabari Smith Jr. the last couple of years as evidence. And so I think coaches are much more interested in the cap room because that's how you can reshape your roster to actually start winning in the here and now. And so because of that, I've been asked by some folks, well, are the Rockets indicating in these interviews if they feel like they have James Harden lined up? And what I've been told is largely no. First off, I don't think they have him locked up. I think it's very much still up in the air. But secondly, if you do get James, it's actually pretty simple in terms of how you use him. You just give him the ball. He's the best passer and one of the best playmakers in the entire NBA. It's not that complicated in terms of if you sign James Harden, what do you do with him? No, there's a way you use James Harden. It goes without saying. And so I think in these interviews, what comes up a lot is – these other scenarios where you're not talking about adding a guy of that stature, we're using him relative to your prospects, Jalen, Alpi, Jabari, is so cut and dried. It's more, you know, guys that, let's say, are more mid, let's call them upper middle class, guys that will be good in certain areas, but maybe they don't have the scoring or playmaking upside of your young guys, but they're more disciplined, they're culture types. How do you blend those together? I think that comes up with James. I think the way the Rockets are looking at it, and I think the way fans should look at it, you just treat it like a bonus if it happens. Right now, you just sort of keep a watchful eye on what happens with the Sixers in the playoffs, and if he's available, then sure, you should be interested. But if he's willing to come, you take that as a bonus, and it's pretty simple what you do once he's on your roster again. My thought is that right now you're honestly looking at other scenarios more simply because those are the ones that are a bit more complicated and you probably need to do more of your due diligence on. So I think that what you said about the Sixers in the playoffs is actually well put. Um, I actually do feel a little bit differently while feeling the same way. So like, I, I think it's very like, so on last week's show, I said that I think about 75% of what Harden is going to be composed of will have to do with things not related to this playoffs. But I think the last 25% and perhaps the most important last 25% has to do with what happens in the playoffs. And I actually don't know how, you know, which way, if you're a Rockets fan, you should be rooting because I think it's going to be more, you know, how, how everything feels like a vibe thing. Like if you win the championship, is it actually more acceptable to walk away? Right? Because at that point, you've given, um, you've given the city a championship. You've given, there's nothing the organization can ask of you realistically. There's nothing more they can really realistically ask of you. And they can't be mad if you, if you want to go home. They, they, you know, they can't, you know, they can't be upset about it, right? They can't be mad, but it's, it's really hard, in my opinion, to walk away. The only guy I can remember. But but it's been done before. Kawhi. Yeah, Kawhi. Right. Yeah, that's the one. But I just think it's, I think it's less likely. Yeah, I hear you, but like, 
like I would say it's also possible where like things just feel a certain way where you walk away like I, you know I, you get what I'm saying like I'm not sure if it's like Fair enough. I think the res- results matter but I'm not sure which way they matter right like I I'm not sure until we get to that point and I'm not sure oh, if I I'm, see what you're saying I, yeah yeah I'm not sure if if James will know until he gets to that point frankly like I think this might be one of those things where like he will see how this this you know this playoffs goes for him and once he gets to the point where you know they're either getting eliminated early or they're getting they're you know they're hoisting up a championship you know he'll kind of know at that point that feeling of whether or not he wants to return or whether or not he's feel yeah. like um he feels like he's completed his job in Philadelphia you know like he'll 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 know at that point you know i think i think yeah. that's kind of where i stand on this yeah, I think that's fair. Um, the results matter, but to what degree they matter and in which direction they matter, you know, none of us truly know because we're on the outside. So yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's something to be said for that. Even though my personal opinion, my gut feel is that losing is better in terms of the likelihood of him going to the Rockets. At the same time, that's just my read on the outside. Regardless. It is a factor in some way, and we should keep an open mind that even though I have this gut feel, it's just me as an outsider. I, I could definitely be. It's wrong the conventional thinking, right? It's the it's the conventional yeah. thinking. You didn't make it, so you're more likely to leave, right? Like I think that's yeah. kind of and and he took a pay cut. He took a ten million dollar pay cut, and that's absolutely going to be factoring into decision making. The contract right. offer he gets next from the 76ers is going to be a factor in decision making. Uh, you know, again, like yeah. th- these are that se- that part of that seventy five percent I was talking about, but that twenty five percent, I just feel like it's going to be a gut feel on, on just what happens uh, in the postseason. I just think that's kind of what's going to yeah. be. Uh, it's interesting that the cap space is coming up these in these uh, free agency beings. Uh, you, you would think that, but uh, you never would assume that a coach is going to be that direct about it in an interview. But that that is interesting. I find I find that interesting. Yeah, I think just because in this case, it's so much. We're talking, give or take, about $60 million, and it's such a huge part of the way your roster looks in the short term. And because you are going to have somewhat of a weird mix next year in terms of you're going to have these veterans that come in, but you're also going to have this very young group. I think at least most of the current core, when you're talking about guys like Jalen and Jabari, All P, Tari Eason, Kevin Porter Jr., I think it's fair to say at least most of those guys will be back and so you'll have sort of a weird mix of these veterans you bring in who are potentially, you know, eight, ten, even more years older than that in the case of James Harden. And then you have these guys who are all in their low 20s. It's going to be an odd mix. And so I do think there's value in sort of talking to coaches about how they would handle it, maybe how they have handled it in the past. I think that's part of maybe the appeal to a Frank Vogel type is that he's had so many different roster configurations in his past. I think... It's just the extent to which the cap space is important to them this summer is a pretty unique thing in the recent NBA, at least in terms of a team that is trying to win immediately. Like you can come up with cases where teams have had close to that much cap space, but there was always sort of the knowledge that, especially if they're a rebuilding team, we might not spend it all right now, that it might be, you know, just exploratory. Whereas the Rockets are in a really unique spot because of the future draft capital that they have owed to Oklahoma City, everybody knows that they are genuinely trying to win next season. They're going to put the best 
product and the floor that they can. And so I think because of that, people are much more, I guess, interested during this process of talking about, hey, you know, what can we potentially do with this cap space this summer? You know what it reminds me of? It, it, it genuinely reminds me when in 2014, the Cavaliers had a legitimate chance to get LeBron James back, right? And they were making a coaching hire at the same time, right? And they and they were weighing all these factors at the same time. And they ultimately went with David Blatt. And, you know, giving a coach like David Blatt his first opportunity is much more easy to salvage when, when it's a rebuilding team, right? So they were kind of making the, the hire with the assumption that we're not 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 necessarily the assumption, but like the um, the data was pointing towards that it, they were probably going to have to be, you know, advancing their rebuild. So they're going to hire someone, you know, that's best suited to do that. But then they 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 hire David Blatt, and the situation just changes on him immediately. So like the coaches, oh, you know, I, I'm sure they think about this stuff. You know, the timing of hires like that, and they're like, okay, I want to be prepared. I want to mentally prepare for what I'm getting into here. And what kind of job right. I'm signing up for, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's why I think some of the lesser scenarios come up more. Because if if you get James or theoretically any top tier option with that money, I know Rockets fans, you know, are going to recoil when I say this, but Kyrie Irving is out there as well, and you could throw him into the point guard mix. At the same time, if you get a guy like that, you know what you're going to do in terms of how you use him, where he fits in with the hierarchy. It's pretty easy. I think, you know, what's more interesting are the scenarios where, you know, you're active in the market this summer, but you don't get a guy that's actually at, like, the hardened tier that's legitimately, like, a top 10, 15, 20 player. Then how do you sort of balance all the competing interests? To me, I think that's something that, I mean, the Rockets want more clarity on it, but I think definitely sort of the the coaches want to know what those options actually are and what that might look like. I'm just going to say this before we move on. I would keep an eye on the on the Clippers. I would keep an eye on the Clippers because if they get eliminated, I don't think they're I don't think they're running that thing back. I really don't. I it's hard for me to imagine a situation in which Paul George and Kawhi Leonard would be happy running this back uh for what is it the fourth year that they've been together? I th- yeah. this this can't be something that's sustainable. So I would just keep an eye on that because you know there are free agents, there are players that could become available that we are we aren't even talking about yet, right? I know Jalen Brown's been mentioned, but I think more realistically, you got to keep an eye on that Clippers team because I think there's a possibility they break it up, and teams like the Rockets are knocking on the door, right? Yeah. I, I, we don't have to spend too much time on that, but I just didn't want to throw it out there. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair. So let's get to coaching free agency. Uh, let's start here before we get to specific names. If you're conducting this search, like, what's the pre? What are the prerequisites you're looking for for this job? Like, what's important to you? I think experience is the biggest thing, and I already touched on why. I just think coming off the Silas years and then all the hits that this organization has taken in a PR sense, even if many of them are overdone. We talked earlier about how much of the culture stuff is real and how much of it is just perhaps exaggerated, fabricated by people that aren't here. And it's just a bunch of little things that led to the Steven Silas demise. I think it may in reality be more of the latter. I think Raphael Stone would definitely argue that. We heard his press conference after 
They didn't pick up the option for Silas. Rafael said he'd fight anybody that said they didn't have a good culture. He pushed back hard. However, one thing that I believe they are all aware of in the front office and going all the way up to ownership is that fair or unfair, these reports that have been out there, they hurt. They can take a toll in terms of what the perception of this franchise is on the outside. Do they have a plan? Is this thing under control? And that perception is especially important when you're going into an offseason when you have, as we were just saying, $60 million in cap space and you need to get multiple players on board with what you are trying to build. And so I think looking at people who have had proven success, especially in the head coach role, I suppose qualified assistants as well. Sam Cassell is someone that Kelly Eco just reported a couple hours before we're recording this podcast that he's going to interview with the Rockets on Sunday. Cassell is someone that even though he hasn't been a head coach, he's been an assistant for a long time and clearly has a lot of respect in NBA player circles. You could sell me on that as well. I know Kevin Young, who interviewed on Friday. Devin Booker has given him a ton of, I suppose, responsibility for helping him develop over the years. I think there's a very upper tier of assistance that you might could consider, but I still think the very likely scenario is that they actually end up hiring a guy with former head coaching experience, someone like Frank Vogel, Ime Udoka, Nick Nurse, if he becomes available from the Raptors, Kenny Atkinson, even though he's insistent now, obviously he was a head coach with the Nets, James Borrego, formerly of the Hornets. I think someone along those lines is much more in tune with what the Rockets need. And I think it would really help them a lot to sort of quell the fears of a lot of people around the NBA that they don't have that adult in the room. I think someone that can bring instant credibility, not just because of what it would mean to the players on the roster, but also how it would position you for the market this summer and beyond. I think instant credibility is where I would start. I'm 100% with you. Like I had written down, like my prerequisites for this job are, uh, a head coaching experience, like that's my number one with the bullet head coaching experience, and two, if I can get it, success at the head coaching, you know, job. I, I think that's like if I can get someone who's done that head coaching job well and at a high level before, like I would, I would feel more comfortable pulling the trigger on that, right? Like, like yes, like James Borrego, I think that's a better hire than going with someone like uh, Adrian Griffin, for example, right? But. Mm-hmm. I would still prefer to go after that upper tier of guys who have had, you know, experience there. I mean, that have had have had success at the head coaching level, right? That have had, that have had, right. you know, fifty win seasons, have ha- have made the playoffs, have had um, serious teams before, and can deal with everything that comes with that. So that's kind of what I would be looking for. And I think not, not only does that add credibility to your organization, that just helps. You know, it just helps. No, like. You know the guy can do the job, right? Like that's like that's like a qualification in itself, right? Like it's like you've done it, that you've done the job before, and you've done it well. So I feel confident with you hang, handling my young guys, you know, or you know my team to be next year. Yeah, I think it's something that resonates certainly with the guys in that locker room. I do think an underrated component to this is if you bring in a big name it's going to make it a lot easier to sell your young guys on why you moved on from Steven Silas. And I know people are listening to this probably thinking, well, that doesn't matter. They have no choice because they're under contract. 
Maybe not, but in terms of getting the best out of them, their day-to-day development, getting them to take this offseason very seriously, I don't think you want them disgruntled. I've been told that a lot of those guys, they looked up to Silas as almost a father-like figure, and they don't believe he had a fair chance. And they would have loved to have seen him return. And so I think beyond the benefits that you laid out as far as the market, how appealing the franchise is overall, I think another thing to consider is that if you bring in a coach with serious pedigree, like a Frank Vogel or Ime Udoka, then even the people who were staunchly in Steven Silas's corner, and I think at least some of the young players are trying to develop, I think it's fair to say that at least right now, while it's raw, they're of that position, then it's pretty easy to draw the contrast with Steven Silas because make the case you want for all the the stuff the last three years being not within Steven Silas's control, or at least some of it. Okay, you can make all the arguments in the world, but the reality is that he has not proven it as a head coach at the NBA level. Guys like Vogel and Yudoka and Atkinson and Nurse, if they get in the mix, they absolutely have. And so I think that's just beyond what you said. Another small benefit to consider in this is that it makes it all the more easy. If you hire a guy like that, I don't think there's going to be much what-ifing about, well, was Steven given a fair chance? No, if you're willing to spend, and it's also, of course, to get in the, the door with guys like that, Tillman Pertita has to be willing to spend not just on the hire, we'll but there. the whole yeah. coaching staff as well then I think it makes it all the more difficult for people to hang on and what if about Steven Silas. If you're, in the, if you're in the door for those types of guys, then I think everyone's going to be on board with, hey, this organization is really, really serious about winning, and this is the next chapter. Let's move on. Yeah, I'm kind of at the point where I think there's not, there's, while there's nothing wrong with interviewing all these assistant coaches, I would personally be disappointed if they go in that direction. You know, as you said, like, like, you know, not only is, is that guy imminently more qualified, I think like it's easier to sell to the young guys, like, hey, we're bringing in like, like, th- we view this next guy as like an upgrade, right? Like, like, it's much easier to sell, like, okay, we decided to go dispense with Steven Silas, but now we're going with Nick Nurse, as opposed to we despite, we deci- decided to go in a different direction. And now we're going with Kevin Young. It's like that's a hard sell, you know. That, that, it's yeah. like you're basically right. saying like, okay, now we're now we're giving someone else a chance, you know. Whereas like, okay, we're we're going with someone who who has proven that he's done this before. So unless something changes, we kind of already know the pool of candidates for this job. You know, Nick Nurse, Kenny Atkinson, Frank Vogel, James Borrego, Griffin, Udoku, Scott Brooks, Rex Kalimian, Kevin Young, Sam Cassell. I've said this before on the show, but and I've written about it. Like Mike. My candidates in order of preference go like this. I would go Nurse 1, I would go Vogel 2, I'd go Brooks 3, and I'd go Atkinson 4. Who are your preferred candidates and like why why are they on that on the list the way that they're they're positioned? I think I'm going to go Yudoka 1, Vogel 2, Atkinson 3, Nurse 4. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's a few reasons for it. First off, I do think, and Jonathan Fagan has made the case about the rule of opposites, in that when teams go into these searches, and we heard Raphael Stone talking about wanting a new voice, they tend to be of a different style than the coach they're replacing. That's part of that new voice. And so Steven Silas, part of his background, well, I would say most of his background, is on the offensive side of the ball. That 
he was effectively described as the offensive coordinator in Dallas for that team led by Luka that had the most efficient offense in NBA history. And of course, we've talked ad nauseum about how difficult it was to replicate that in Houston since the Rockets, after training Harden, didn't have the one singular guy that you could trust to take on that type of role. And so I think the defensive-oriented coaches probably have a leg up, and so that makes me put Atkinson slightly lower just because he's someone that's predominantly known for his offense. Also, while he's been a head coach, it's worth noting that Atkinson with the Nets, that was predominantly getting a team off the ground floor, which could have value to the Rockets, I guess, because, I mean, they still are in the basement technically, coming off the second worst record in the NBA. But he hasn't done it yet at a contending level. I do think with this hire, you're thinking about not just this season, but also three or four years from now when you're actually trying to contend. What's the coach going to be like at that level? You can see it more with Udoka and Vogel and Nick Nurse. The reason I have Nurse last, it's a combination of things. First off, I don't know if he's truly going to come available. I think, you know, part of what they're yeah, trying to gonna, get Yeah, I was going to be my next question. Right. Yeah, part of what they're trying to get is alignment. And right now, you know, they can't interview him to the extent they can the others. And so I think it's easier to sort of get the alignment and form the relationship to make sure that, you know, whatever did or didn't happen. We talked about some of the reporting that's out there regarding the Stone Silas years. You want to make sure in this process that you're on the same page. And if Nurse isn't willing to give up his Raptors job, then he's not going to interview. And I don't think he's so far ahead of the others in his resume that you just guarantee him the job. Say, if you leave Toronto, we'll give you this job. No, I mean, you would interview him, but is he willing to give up his job in Toronto just for an interview? And the chance they might just be you know, giving up that $8 million a year contract and then sit out a year the way that, well, Quinn Snyder mostly did. They got hired in uh, late February of this year with the Hawks. I don't know if he's willing to do that. Now, maybe the Raptors push for resolution. We've heard Udoka in particular connected to the Raptors. So if the Raptors get some intel that Udoka's a serious candidate in Houston and might be about to come off the board, maybe that pushes them to have a hard conversation with uh, Nick Nurse. And instead of playing this out, say, hey, one way or another, we've got to actually make a decision. We can't stall this out. But I just think right now, I put Nurse a little bit down just because Number one, I mean, I do think that some of the issues he's had the last couple of years in Toronto in terms of, you know, are the players fully bought in? How much is he willing to simultaneously play veterans while also developing the young guys? Those are questions that while I'm not saying that he can't answer them, the combination of those questions with the reality that because of his contract, he has a tough time literally answering them. I just have him at the back of the list now. I still think he's in the the so-called top tier, but I just uh, do not see a path right now that makes him likely. I think of the top tier, Udoka and Vogel are the most likely. Number one, they both interviewed. I've been told that both interviews went very well. I don't know how they interviewed compared to one another. As I see it from my chair, I think Vogel is the higher floor guy and that over his 10 years as a coach, he's had so many different situations and proven at least to some competence, his ability to handle them, a total rebuild in Orlando, a situation in LA where they were at a complete 
contending level, sky-high expectation, managing egos of guys like LeBron James and Anthony Davis. With the Pacers, a hodgepodge of everything. They were largely in a rebuild when he took over in 2010. Then they got to a contending level with Paul George in the early 2010s, fell back a bit after Paul George had the catastrophic leg injury with USA Basketball. So I just think Vogel someone, his teams consistently try hard. He's very respected. He has a lot of great reputation as far as people around the NBA when you talk to them. I struggle to see a world in which Frank Vogel completely bust. I'm sure some will point to his Orlando tenure, but look, those rosters were awful and it was only two years. I have a tough time saying that that was just a complete failure that should be a huge red flag. No, I think the bottom line is Vogel is very likely to succeed. With Udoka, there's all the positives. This time a year ago, he was perhaps the hottest young coach on the market but he's only been a coach for one year and it was a fairly loaded situation in terms of talent. Yes. I know the Celtics were 500 going in, but that was a good roster. He's only done it for one year. So we can talk all about his pedigree as a former player working for six, seven years with Greg Popovich being the biggest name on the market, but it is just a one year sample. And then there is the baggage from the circumstances that led to him losing his job with the Celtics. And so I think you look at Vogel versus Udoka, it's sort of, Vogel is probably the high floor guy. You know what you're getting with him. He's respected. He's going to get the guys to buy in and try hard, and there's a lot of value in that. With Yudoka, I think there's probably more upside. I think it's pretty clear what some of the limitations are with Vogel in terms of his schemes. He's a bit more rigid. I had Caitlin Cooper, one of my favorite X's Nose people, on my podcast the other day, and she talked about him being a bit more rigid, you would like, in terms of his defensive approach to the game, his abilities as a tactician, as opposed to Yudoka's a bit more flexible. We saw him do some things with Robert Williams as a roaming big with the Celtics last year that were super creative. You could argue that Yudoka being younger and with what he's shown to this point, and of course the pedigree that comes from being with Popovich all those years, a former player, Yudoka has better odds of being, like, I would say a top five coach, but Vogel probably has better odds at being a top 10 to 15 coach. And so I think you can make a case for both in terms of do you prioritize the floor, do you prioritize the ceiling? And so to me, with those being the top two candidates, and I think they are in part because, again, I think Atkinson's a tier lower because of the fact that I think all things equal, the Rockets would probably break the tie going with defense or the opposite of Silas. And then also compared to Nurse, just the availability. I think in terms of Yudoka and Vogel, it's a fascinating contrast because they both bring, well, I guess you can argue that superficially they're both defensive-minded coaches. I think when you look at it more closely, there's a bit more discrepancy in terms of how they would go about it and ultimately what their forecast is. Uh, so you, you said a lot there. Let's just break it down real quick. So I want to backtrack to when we start, we were talking about Nick Nurse and his viability to be actually on the market, right? Because like, I'm not sure how available he's going to be just like you. And I've been kind of wrestling with that question for a minute. I don't know why Toronto wouldn't just give him a, a, a contract extension. And to be frank, I don't know why he would leave Toronto because even though I think Rafael has done a good job, Masai and Bobby Webster are more proven than him. They just are. Like this must just be a money issue. Like, like what do you, what do you think is going on there? I think there's been a lot reported about 
Well, okay, reported is the wrong word. There's been a lot hinted at that there's some behind-the-scenes things that have gone on in Toronto in terms of that locker room not being bought in. And I also think it may be a situation that's analogous to the Rockets and Mike D'Antoni in 2020, and that no one would argue that, or no one should argue, that Mike D'Antoni was a bad coach that needed to be replaced. Yet when teams get to a spot in which they feel sort of trapped from the sense of, okay, we've got this veteran-type roster, it's tough to justify totally tearing it down and going into everything that the company's a rebuild, but there's no clear way for us to get over the hump in that we don't have a lot of cap space, we don't have a lot of trade assets, or perhaps in Toronto's case, trade desirability. And so it feels like you're sort of spinning your wheels. Mediocrity treadmill is too strong, but basically in that good but not great tier, it's very easy to convince yourself, and maybe sometimes it isn't accurate, but that you should consider a coaching change because it's the easiest way to at least try something different. And I think that was part of the thought process with the Rockets and D'Antoni three years ago, is that, hey, even though this isn't his fault, look, there's only so many ways you can... But didn't D'Antoni just walk away? Like, in the end, yes, but if, I think if, he was going to be gone anyway. I think he was going to be gone anyway. I think it was a situation where, yeah, he made the decision on the flight back that, that he wasn't going to be part of the process. I think ultimately they would have reached the same point, regardless of whether you know he gave them that news or not. I just think the Rockets felt very boxed in and maybe if he if mike had not proactively done that then maybe the rocket situation would have drug out in limbo much the same way the raptors are right now but i think both organizations are sort of in a similar spot and and when it comes to being in that position a head coach is the easiest thing to change there's no salary cap on coaching hires and so it's very easy to sort of say hey let's try to change the mix. And since you can't really, or it's more difficult to substantively change the roster, then let's see what happens if they're used a different way or if we bring in a different voice. And so my suspicion is that that's what Toronto is considering. But I just, I think they're sort of in no man's land because at the same time, they also know that you can do a lot worse than Nick Nurse. He's a really good coach. And it's one of those things, just like the Rockets and D'Antoni, it's like, yeah, there's part of you that wants to sort of see what's behind mystery door number two, but they also know there's a lot of downside risk to letting go an accomplished head coach who knows what he's doing. And so I think, again, it's just they're sort of in no man's land, and I think that's where the Rockets would have been three years ago. It's just Mike D'Antoni pulled the plug on them before they could even get there and said, hey, you know what, I'm not even going to you know wait around for you to – to go through this debate. Yeah, it's interesting because I could have sworn I remember Daryl saying that his priority was to bring D'Antoni back. But regardless, like I, I get the point you're making about the, the Raptors wanting to move on from him. I still don't agree with the logic. I, I think it's probably the wrong move, but... Uh, yeah, it may be. Nonetheless, yeah. For the record, I think part of the reason Daryl said that is that Daryl had one foot out the door too. I think it's one of those things that's very easy to say because he knew that he was not going to be the person making that final decision. Like, I do not buy for one second that if Mike D'Antoni decides to stay, that Daryl Morey sticks around 
in Houston beyond 2020. I don't think there's any way in hell that happens. I think part of uh, Daryl being willing to say that is the reality that he would never get proven wrong. It was not going to be him making the search. And of course, we've since learned that even though Daryl had not formally parted ways with the Rockets, people learned early in that coaching search in September 2020 that Rafael was the one actually calling the shots. So I think that's part of you know, Daryl's statement about wanting to bring back D'Antoni, I think it's partly true. And I think there's also an element of he knew he wasn't going to be the guy ultimately making that final decision anyway. Adam Spolane brought this up on the last show. Like, some of these names are going to be pretty expensive. Like, these are all names, like Nurse, Atkinson, Vogue. These are all names with, like, significant market cachet right yeah, now. Yeah, like, absolutely. How, how confident are we, because you brought this up, that when push comes to shove, Tillman Fertitta will open up the checkbooks for his top coach because we know how ugly these negotiations got with D'Antoni in like 2019. Like that frankly rubbed me the wrong way. Like I can only imagine how D'Antoni took that. Do we think Tillman's kind of learned his lesson in this regard? Is he going to, is he going to pay for, you know, a premium coach? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think with these searches, you can tell based on who grants the interviews, look at Detroit search. That's the only other vacancy right now. They have not interviewed anyone of that top tier. And at, at this point, there's a lot of time that goes into the interviewing process. And these high-profile coaches are not going to waste their time if the team just isn't in the ballpark for what they can command as far as their market value. So it, just like any big corporate job, one of the first criteria that I guess one of the first checkpoints is what salary is this person willing to accept? And is that in alignment with what the company, the organization is willing to spend? And so I feel pretty confident in saying that guys like Ujoka and Vogel would not interview for the Rockets if they didn't have an understanding that there was potentially a deal to be had financially. I think that's a big part of why they aren't interviewing with Detroit. They're in a different financial pool. I think one of the big things that shifted about the Rockets, and I think they had to learn the hard way, in the early years of Tillman Fertitta's ownership, and we did the podcast last offseason on Tillman for anyone that wants to you know, look at our thoughts on the Tillman Fertitta regime, just go back in the Red Nation Hoops archives and you can find our thoughts there. I don't want to relitigate all of it, but one of the big mistakes they made early on was negotiating through the media. They leaked so much stuff in the 2019 and 2020 range. There were so many examples of Tillman going out of his way to sort of talk the talk on the front end. In the case of the negotiations with D'Antoni, that's a clear-cut example. And around the shift of the organization from D'Antoni and Maury to Stone Silas in late 2020, basically the shift from contention to rebuild we've talked about it before, there's been far, far less from Tillman Fertitta. He's taken a step back. I don't know if I want to say organizationally, because organizationally, he's always taken a step back. He's never been super Jerry Jones-like from the standpoint of being involved day-to-day, but he's not it's doing Patrick. nearly the... Yeah. yeah, well, and beyond that, he's never done nearly the um, the interviews the last couple of years that he has relative to, I would say, especially the 2018 through 2020 range. You know, in a lot of other businesses, you want to drum up interest by your front man, your CEO, whoever it is, going out and basically putting his face on TV. 
it, there's no such thing as bad publicity in a lot of other businesses. In sports ownership, there actually is such a thing as bad publicity because fans care enough, they will hold you accountable. They will make you look silly when the receipts are out there and things don't turn out to their interest because people care so much about the results of these teams that, yeah, when you sell them a bill of goods on the front end that doesn't materialize, then, yeah, that has consequences for you and the perception not just amongst the fan base, but also it contributes to you know the national narrative surrounding the team as well. So I just think the last two to three years, and we've talked about this before, I do think we've seen a much quieter Tillman Fertitta from the standpoint of not, I, I guess, proactively going out and... Yeah, he's not going on the jump anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And making promises that he may or may not be able to keep. I think they've learned from the past. And so I think them being in the door and interviewing these big names, I do think that there's an understanding with, you know, Tillman and the agents of these coaches that, hey, there is a financial deal to be had if the Rockets do decide that one of these guys is the guy. And I want to commend him for that because that is a great point that you brought up. Like, he he has kept his mouth shut uh, for... The last, I would say, like year, year and a half ish, like he's really kind of laid low. The only time we really heard from him was that drunken interview he did uh, in. Uh, Pray for Victor. Yeah, yeah, that's the only real, only time we heard of, we heard from him, and he he was not uh, up to his faculties at that point. But in general, like he's he, he's done the right thing, and like I think I think that's the correct approach. So you know, if he's learned his lesson there, I think it's it's you know possible he's learned his lesson in regards to like you know, yeah. hey, let's let's pay a little bit more, let's pay a little bit more, you know. Yeah, and I'll just say, in contrast to his other businesses, this is one where until you are in that chair owning a sports team, it's tough to appreciate just how much it's different from your run-of-the-mill big business. Because when you're representing Landry's or Golden Nugget, there are very few people that are so passionate about exactly what happens with these restaurants or with a casino that they're going to come back months, years later and say, you promised me this. Why isn't this working out exactly as you said? No, in those cases, it makes much more sense to sort of take the short-term benefit of, I guess, notoriety of just increasing the brand exposure of you and your business. And even if what you say doesn't prove to be entirely accurate, for most brands, people don't care about the specifics enough for you to truly be held accountable. Where sports is different is in the diehard connections. People care so much about the wins and losses, and especially because, you know, in big business, you can be very good, but not the singular best of, I guess, the big 30, and people aren't going to be like, wow, you failed to meet your goal. No, as long as you're very good, that's fine. In the NBA, where it's all about being the best out of 30, and it's really hard to do so, moves at the margins matter. So I think part of it, too, is that with with his run-of-the-mill businesses, yeah, you can say stuff, and then you can follow through to an extent, and as long as you're pretty good, then everything's going to be fine. In sports, where fans want to be the best out of 30, and if they're not, if their team isn't, there's going to be hell to pay if they were promised things that weren't delivered, it's just very different from your other businesses. And I think that's something that he learned from the uh, Shut Up and Listen book tour of 2019. Yeah, and, and listen, sports is weird, right? Like, like the front man is seldom the guy who owns the team. It's usually the general manager or the head coach, right? Or some combination of both. Like And, like, 
letting Rafael be that guy is the healthy way to go about this. It's netted the Rockets a pretty drama-free year other than, you know, maybe the articles at the end, but that had nothing to do with Tillman. So you, you mentioned Ime a couple of times, and I kind of let that let that go because it was kind of the elephant in the room for me. Because I kind of think if you're going to make a hire like that, you better be damn sure you've done your vetting, right? Because Brooklyn yeah. was about to hire the guy, and they backed out and went with Jacques Vaughn, right? And this was kind of a red flag for me. Like, like, like why Brooklyn decided last minute to just pull the rug out. And it's possible that we'll never know to the full extent what happened in Boston. Like, that's at this point, it's looking likely. If you don't know now, it's pro- we're probably never going to know. But the Rockets should do their best to get a, be- a, a good handle on what exactly happened there. Uh, talk to as many HR sources as you possibly can in Boston. Yeah. Call everyone you know from a reporter standpoint uh, that's plugged in with that organization and try to figure out as much as you possibly can before you pull that trigger because, man, that's a risky hire from not only from a PR standpoint because I'm, I guarantee you if they make that hire, the Rockets are already sitting on thin ice for the media right now, which some of that's unfair, yeah. but I, they are. It's just the case. If, if they make that hire, they're going to get blasted. They're going to get killed. And I don't necessarily know if that's the, the right approach. I just, they, they just have to be sure. They have to be sure that everything that went wrong in Boston will not happen in Houston. See, the, so there's a couple of things there. First off, I really don't think they'll get killed. But there'll be a few negative columns written for sure, but I actually don't think the backlash will be that significant. Now, to your earlier point, I've asked, and the people that I've talked to with the Rockets – swear that they have done their vetting, that this is something that they take seriously and they do on the front end. It's not, oh, you talk to Ime and then you look at all of this quickly on the back end and just try to check a box. No, they say that they've done their vetting. It came back very positively. And I feel pretty confident in saying from the conversations I've had that the situation that led to him losing his job in Boston will not be a determining factor in terms of why he doesn't get the job. I think he's going to be evaluated truly on his own basketball merits. I feel pretty confident in saying that. The other factor, and I think this is a key distinction between the Brooklyn search and what's going on now with Houston, Brooklyn let Steve Nash go on November 1st. They were 2-5, and five, literally two weeks into the season. That scandal had just broken on the eve of training camp. And Brooklyn also had a separate scandal involving Kyrie Irving at the time and the whole anti-Semitism thing. For Brooklyn and everything surrounding that organization at that time to hire Ime Udoka, it would have felt like he faced no consequences. He would have basically sat out two weeks and immediately walked to another high-profile job just three hours away. At the time, the Nets were a full-blown contender led by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, the perception would have been that he faced no real consequences for his actions. And at this point, he has missed a full season. There have been consequences. And I'm not saying that everyone's going to be ready to welcome him back to the NBA, but I think there's a lot of people who would have been rubbed the wrong way by bringing him back so quickly that are going to be more open to the idea of him coming back after missing a season. Because here's the thing. If you're not okay with Ime Udoka coming back now, when will you be? 
if missing an entire season isn't enough, is it two years? Is it five years? Or are you just wanting him banned for life? And I'm not saying you can't feel that way. People absolutely can. But I just think in terms of the percentages, the people that draw that hard of a line are going to be much lower than the percentage of people that objected to him just two weeks into last season returning to the bench. I think that's where things are a bit different for the Rockets is they know they have the benefit of time in a way that Brooklyn simply did not. I just think that there's a lot of people that are open to giving a second chance to Ime Udoka, assuming he shows remorse, assuming the references check out. And what's going to be interesting is that if the Rockets hire Udoka, it's going to be one of the first times, perhaps the first time, that he's actually looked in the camera and had to truly answer for this because he didn't have to do a press conference with the Celtics because, you know, they suspended him immediately and then, you know, eventually parted ways. And at that point, he's not really the organization's business anymore. So he's sort of just been in the shadows for the past year. If the Rockets or any other team hire him, then, yeah, he's going to have to look in the camera at that opening press conference and address it. And he has to be ready to say the right things. But assuming that he shows remorse, that he takes accountability, I think there's people that after missing a season that will say, hey, I think this guy may have learned his lesson because there actually were consequences. As opposed to if the Nets hired him just two weeks into the year, a lot of people were just very doubtful that that he had that he would have been going through the accountability part of it that would sort of yeah, make there was no contrition for the future. Right. right. Yeah, it would basically be just giving him on a platter the next job. And part of the reason that people are willing to give second chances is based on the fact that, hey, if this person suffers real consequences for the first mistake, then they're going to keep those consequences in mind in future situations so that they're not repeated. Yeah, and I want to be very clear about this. Like, just a quick disclaimer. Like, you and I are having this conversation, I think, under the guise that we don't know what the hell happened in Boston. Like, we don't, we don't know the full story, right? Like, at least I think we both don't. I don't. I, I can only speak for myself. I don't know that, you know, Boston was very vague about it. All we know is the reporting that came out after the fact. All we know is that it wasn't a fireable offense, but it was a suspension worthy offense. It was kind of strange in that respect. You know, we know it involved a relationship. We know that it, it involved, you know, it, po- it was possibly consensual, possibly it didn't start that way. It was, it was strange, right? Like it, it was, the reporting we got was very scattershot. We still don't know what happened in that. So I want to, I want to, I want to be very clear. We're having that conversation under that guise. We don't know what happened. So we're kind of, we, that, that's the way we're talking about it. Okay. Among the names that you did mention, one of the names I, I didn't see, I didn't, I heard you, I don't think you mentioned, I didn't hear Scott Brooks. I guess my question is, why not? Well, I've, I'm not going to I'm not going to say that the reporting that's out there is wrong. I know Manix mentioned it immediately and then I think locally Ali Khan Bajani and Adam Spillane mentioned him. I will say that in all the conversations I've had his name has never come up. So, I'm not going to say they're wrong. Maybe they're talking to somebody that I haven't, but for me, I have not heard that myself. I also looked at, you know, Jonathan Fagan in the Chronicle has a coaching tracker. Brooks isn't on that. I don't believe Kelly Eco's written anything about him as well. 
So, no, you know, I'm trying yeah. to choose my words carefully because I don't want to make it seem like, oh, I'm saying they're wrong. No, they may be right. I mean, well, I'm talking to one person, they're talking to somebody else, and, you know, there's all sorts of agendas at play. So I'm not, like, trying to throw shade at them. I'm just saying from everything that I've – from everyone that I've talked to and all the names that I've heard, I haven't heard Brooks mentioned as a as a real candidate. That is a good point. If you're not in that initial barrage of reporting, it's not the best indication that of your chances of getting the job, right? Like, like if you're not like one of the first people in the door, normally, you know, if you're one of the first people in the door, you're you're getting serious consideration for the job. And like, the fact that he hasn't been is, you know, it, it definitely raises some eyebrows. Now, it's also possible that his interview just isn't scheduled yet, and and or maybe it's, it's scheduled in the future, and that just hasn't gotten reported yet. That's also possible, right? And it's possible that things have just kind of been in the down low. But it's also possible in that in the beginning process, Scott Brooks was a name that was mentioned and not brought up again. And because it was mentioned, it got reported, right? That's also possible. Mm-hmm. It's now dawning on me, on me now that I, 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 you're right. After, after, um, Mainix reported it and after my guy at Bleacher Report, I'm forgetting his name, Jake Fisher. After Jake Fisher reported it, I haven't heard it since. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right. So, like, um, that 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 is interesting. So we're definitely gonna have to keep keep an eye on that. I, just real quick on Brooks, like I don't think he gets a a, a fair rap, man. I, I really don't. I think the guy yeah. is um has has a pretty impressive resume, and for some reason, when it comes to coaches, we are so tailored to look at what happened recently versus the entire resume. Like two guys, both both might have a winning percentage of like fifty five percent. But uh, because the first guy did all his winning in the in the front end of his career versus the back end, like we're not talking about him, right? Or, or, like he's not as impressive. He's not. A, he doesn't have as much cachet, right? Like Mike Brown was a name who lost cachet because of his recent coaching track, and and I thought that was unfair. And he got his second chance in Sacramento, and and that was a great, great second chance. It was a great decision. So like sometimes like for some reason these coaches lose like cachet. And then they just never get it back, or until they get their next job back. Mike D'Antoni was like this in Houston too, so um, it's it's possible that um, the, that's the way people are looking at this. But I don't think it's yeah. the right way to look at it. I think you got to look at the entire resume. Yeah, I agree. I think in the case of Brooks, I think he's given a bit of an unfair rap based on those years in Oklahoma City. In large part, it's sort of fitting that he coached James Harden because I feel people look at Brooks as a coach the same way or the same flawed way they look at Harden the player which is that because they're in a contending environment and they didn't win the title there must be something fatally wrong about them when in reality it's so damn difficult to be the last team standing out of 30 or even in the playoffs okay it's out of 16 I love that comp the Harden as a player and Brooks as a coach like but they both have had unlucky breaks left and right yeah, and and so when you're in that environment, people will just say, oh, you know, choker, and want to go for mystery box. And, of course, I think that's part of why a lot of these coaching searches go so awry. I, I think we talked about Nurse and the Raptors, and, you know, I made the comp of Nurse and the Raptors right now being analogous perhaps to D'Antoni and the Rockets in 2020. There's such a tendency to look behind the mystery box and – see, I guess, a new car that hasn't been driven off the lot yet, and there's unlimited potential. 
And nine times out of ten, it just doesn't work out that way. And there is value in the brand name that you know. I think along similar lines, even though he is a candidate, Frank Vogel is getting undersold as well because and, – and he's someone who actually did win the NBA title in 2020. But it's just he's not yeah. a sexy name. Like he's just someone that feels underwhelming because he's just sort of there. Consistently a top 10, top 15 coach, but he's not ever going to be potentially Greg Popovich, Eric Spolstra, someone of that ilk. And so people are just sort of bored. Well, why not? And so I think that's... Well, why- why can't why can't he be like a top five coach of the NBA? You know, like that that that's interesting to me. Because like, I, I, I yeah, I, I I just I just think the guy gets he he gets a raw deal everywhere he goes for some reason. Like front yeah. offices just throw the guy under the bus when they're done with him. Yeah, I guess that's true. It, yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, some of it too. It's just so much of you know, are you a top five coach? Also comes down to uh, personnel. And so are you in the right place at the right time for those stars to align? Because a lot of times people conflate coaching with just overall positive roster situations. And so it's tough to say how much is the coaching versus how much is, look, this guy just walked in to a certain set of circumstances that a lot of coaches would look great under. But to you know go full circle and to bring it back to Scott Brooks, and I suppose the James Harden analogy, when you're in a contending environment and things don't work out, Many times, especially the more casual fans, will reach for explanations as to why it didn't work out. And you can, you often see these sweeping conclusions of the leaders of those teams, both on court and the coach and GM, just don't have what it takes. When in reality, the stars just didn't align for them at a given time. And there's value in just being able to consistently manage egos and get a talented roster to that stage in the first place. And then you just see if the bounces go your way in in a given series. And so I think there is something to be said for Brooks being undervalued. I I will say, though, the the reason why, even if I did hear an interview, which I haven't yet, I don't think he has the defensive chops of Udoka or Vogel and Nurse if he were to become available. To me, those are the three that I think come up the most frequently because they have a certain style to them. And to Jonathan Fagan's point about the rule of opposites, it happens to be a very different style than the last head coach. So the one thing I'll say about Scott is while I do agree with you that he's largely undervalued and people give him a bit of an unfair rap, I don't think he'd be at the Udoka slash Vogel slash maybe nurse tier just because stylistically I don't know if it matches up with exactly what the Rockets are looking for in this vacancy. Yeah, I have him in the Atkinson tier, right? Like I, I'm not okay. saying like he's like my he's in my um in my top tier, right? Like I, my top tier is I can just say it's 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 nurse and, and Vogel, right? Like that they're there by themselves. And everybody else is kind of like in that second tier, right? Like that I mentioned. I, I just I just think the guy uh, did a really good job. He has he's the only guy on this list actually that has five fifty win seasons. Like five. Like he has five of those under his belt. Nobody else has that. And uh for some reason he's just getting discounted. Uh, I don't know. I think it's like a little unfair. Okay. So is there someone not on this list that you think should be on this list? I can go first. Yeah, go first. Let me think. The obvious name here is Dan Tony, right? Uh, yeah, and I mentioned him last week. 
Uh, and another name that that got brought up uh, from when I was on the show with Adam was actually Dave Yeager, which I'm surprised you know didn't get an interview, right? Like I I thought Dave Yeager is uh, I think Dave Yeager is one of the more creative offensive coaches in the NBA, and um, he's just not in this. He's not being considered right now. Uh, so like those are the two that stick out at me. I will say I'm a little surprised that we haven't heard. Uh, I'm not advocating for these names. I'm a bit surprised. <laughs> And perhaps it's a good thing that they haven't given any interviews internally. Like we heard a lot of talk during the year about these interims options. Should they move on from (laughs) Silas and could they potentially earn the job next year? It's pretty clear that, and Rafael said this in the press conference, that he wants the new coach to have full autonomy over his staff. And that's in big contrast to the Gerald Morey days when Gerald Morey decided the assistants. And so because of that, the entire staff, even John Lucas, who was the lead assistant last year, is sort of at the mercy of whoever they end up hiring. And Rafael did mention that, you know, they could mention, hey, you know, we do like this guy and maybe try to nudge them in a direction. But I do think it's interesting that the Rockets aren't even granting an interview to any of their internal names. I would have expected at least Lucas and maybe Mahmoud to get a look going into this. And there's just been absolutely nothing on that front to this point. Yeah. And even some of the names that have been there before in the past, like Matt Braze, which was a, was a guy that was there for a while. Uh, and left I think in 2018, 2019, around that range, uh, didn't get an interview. Um, you know, I, you know, obviously some of the guys, on the coaching staff, like I'm, I'm obviously really biased towards Ben Moods, but like um, that, that was interesting as well. But you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly disappointed because I think I, w- I think they should go for a head coach, like a guy who's been a head coach before. You know, like I think yeah. it's just too, too risky at this point to go for a name like that. I, I just, re- I just realized who I wanted to bring up, even though it feels like he's been a part of every search in recent Rockets history. I am slightly surprised, yeah, that we never heard Jeff Van Gundy mentioned, simply because he does fit that defensive criteria that we laid out. He does have experience. He has interviewed in the past, and even though he hasn't gotten the jobs, it's clear that he does have a positive relationship with the key decision makers in the organization. Every time he comes to Houston, you do see him you know, chatting up the Fertitas. I don't think there's any bad blood there by any means. I never expected him to get the job. But it would not have surprised me if they had at least called him because he's been a part of these searches in the past. And even though it feels like he's really old, given the fact that he coached the Rockets in like the early 2000s, he's 61. That's 10 years younger than Mike D'Antoni when he was last Rockets coach. Isn't it crazy? He coached in the 90s. If he wanted to be, he could still be a coach age-wise. I do think his relationships with the organization – are genuine. He does have coaching chops, albeit not recently. He does have a big name. He is sort of the opposite stylistically from Steven Silas. So yeah, beyond not interviewing internally, if there's any external candidate that maybe I would have thought might get a look that hasn't, it, it would be JVG. Yeah, and he lives in Houston, so it is a little bit surprising that you didn't get a look. It's... <laughs> Maybe maybe it's because he's balding. Maybe that's what it is. Like maybe that's why people think he's so old. Like maybe maybe he's just, he's just always been this balding head coach. And he you know meanwhile you do the math and it's like oh the guy was coaching in like his his early forties in the NBA uh, and just you know is assumed to be like a seventy year old man. And, and no the guy's like 
in the prime of his head coaching career, technically. Uh, but hey, maybe he's just happy where he's at. You know, that's a pretty cushy job there at ABC, and yeah, maybe he just doesn't want to leave. You know, fair point. Okay, last question before we head out of here. Uh, and I, I, I did not expect to take too much of your time today, but I, I am grateful that you're giving me this. Scoot Henderson or Brandon Johnson? Brandon Miller, you mean? Brandon Miller, excuse me. <laughs> I was like, who's Brandon Johnson? Um, I don't know why I said Johnson. <laughs> to me, it's Scoot Henderson. There's just way too much risk, in my opinion, passing up someone who I know the G League Ignite campaign was slightly underwhelming when you look at the shooting percentages. But look, we have years and years of scouting intel that points to him as really a number one overall prospect in most years. And I know Brandon Miller came on strong during SEC play in the SEC tournament. People seem to have forgotten, by the way, that his numbers in the NCAA tournament were actually pretty dreadful. But I just think in general, it's very easy to overreact to small sample sizes if they just conveniently happen to occur in games that are on TV and Alabama being the number one team in the country most of the year, people watch Brandon Miller. They're not really watching the G League Ignite. Not saying you could never convince me. I do think a six foot nine guy who can shoot like Brandon Miller has some appeal. And if the Rockets landed at number three overall, I would be happy to take him. But if I'm at number two, I've got to take the guy that has way more years of scouting intel, I guess the way I would put it is people for many years in a row have looked to the 2023 draft class and said that Scoot Henderson is a top-tier guy. And in most years, he'd be the number one overall pick. It's just in 2023, Victor happens to be in the class. Brandon Miller, while a good prospect, was never at that level. That's actually why, and I hope Dave Hardesty doesn't jump me for this, that's part of why I was a little hesitant to fully get on board with Jabari Smith Jr. during the draft process a year ago, at least not to the level of number one overall, because Paolo and Chet were the guys going into that class. Jabari jumped into that tier with a strong year at Auburn, and of course he has all the two-way potential and I know that certainly I wish the best for him now, and he's still going to be a very good NBA player, in my opinion. But the years prior to that, people saw him as a very good prospect. They didn't see him as like the, the best or second best guy in his class. And so I always just sort of kept that in the back of my mind. Is some of this small sample theater, why didn't this pop out a year ago or two years ago? And so I sort of used that same lens when I'm looking at Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller. I like what Brandon Miller did at Alabama. I think he's a good prospect, but there's a reason why for years now people have talked about Scoot Henderson as a potential transcendent type prospect. And so uh, unless there's something that really jumps out during this pre-draft process, I think Scoot would be my guy between those two. Yeah, I, I favor Scoot by hair if things were in a vacuum, but like I think it's largely a coin toss because of team construction. How you how you believe Rage is going to go? I think that that should play a factor in this because if the Rockets get Harden and they already have Scoot Henderson, I think that's going to be that should play a role in my opinion. Still lean Henderson because of the smarts. Like he's just such a smart prospect, and he has like a headiness about him, and like his his decision making always just seems like 
well thought out, right? It's very Chris Paul light. Not Chris Paul. I'm not saying he's Chris Paul, but very Chris Paul light right. in the way he makes uh, his decision making. So, like, that's kind of why I still favor Squeeze uh, Ice right now. But I think it's, it's a toss up. Ooh, on that note, if you were to place odds on this, so I, mm-hmm. I have it at forty. I have it at forty percent. Adam last week had it at sixty percent. What are the odds, in your opinion, that Harden returns to Houston? That's tough. Um, I'm actually gonna go fifty-fifty. I know that feels like okay. a cop out, but the reason I'm saying that I think I'm closer to Adam in terms of I think it's more likely than not that James is going to want back. I don't think it's 100% a given that the Rockets would take him. I think they probably would, simply because with James, even though he's older, and there is some risk if you give him a four-year max, you know that's going to be a good asset, because right now he's worth more than the max. As opposed to other guys, there's a risk of it potentially becoming a bad contract. So I do think, more likely than not, they'd be interested. But I do think, you know, there's worlds where, you know, we see what happens with the draft lottery. We see who they hire at coach. But I don't think they want to bring James Harden back and make it the culture that it was three, four years ago to where it's his organization and he is one of 12. I think that was actually an analogy that Adam Spillane made a few months back. No, if James comes back, it's because he is the same as everybody else. It's not you know, the Harden rules, and then he can skip practices to go to the club and stay in L.A. a couple extra days. No, he has to be on the same footing as everybody else. That's important for development. Is he willing to do things differently than he has even this year? For example, I was told the final weekend of the regular season, Harden was in Houston, Now, he did have an excused absence from the Sixers. He didn't just not show up. And it's not like the Sixers had anything to play for. But at the same time, he wasn't with his teammates. And even if they don't want to make a spectacle and say, no, we're not going to allow you, I'm sure Daryl Morey was not thrilled when he heard, oh, by the way, James is going to be in Houston while his own team is playing regular season basketball games. I'm sure that did not give Daryl warm and fuzzies. Is James willing to sacrifice to be you know, a true teammate and not have everything, you know, his own set of rules. I think that's a fair question. I I don't think the Rockets are just going to give him the keys to the organization the way that, and in fairness to Daryl Morey, when James Harden was at his peak in the late 20s, he was so good. His value was so extreme that it was worth it. It was so valuable to the Rockets to have him on the roster that even if there were these other things that perhaps rub people the wrong way off the court, whatever, he's so damn good, it just doesn't matter, the other parts of it. Now that we're talking about a 34 or 35-year-old James Harden, that stuff does matter a bit more. So the reason I'm going 50-50, I do think, you know, I think Spillane is probably right from everything I've heard. I do think it's better than 50-50 that Harden wants to come back But are the Rockets sold on him being the guy for that cap space? Do they feel that he's going to be the right cultural fit? And then leaving aside, you know, what if you get Scoot Henderson, who, as you were just talking about, potentially is someone that needs the ball in his hands to fully develop? What if one of the big-name coaches has a certain vision for how they want to play and thinks there's a better use for that cap space than James Harden? 
I don't think there's any of those scenarios that are likely. However, I would at least leave the door somewhat open to the idea that there's a world where James Harden wants to come back and the Rockets aren't 100% sold that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I guess my question would be like, if not James, then who, right? Like, because you have this space, right? And mm-hmm. and like, you need a lot of the qualities that James would be offering, right? Like, I think this team needs an offensive engine. I think they need a high level playmaker to really stir the drink here. And I think James offers that, right? And I think if you're not going to get James, you better have someone lined up that that you think can do that for you, right? That that can fill that role, right? That can you know be that you know lead decision maker for you. Also, I would say, I, I agree. Like, I, I think James, if James comes back, it, it has to be different. But I think, I think it would be different. I, th- I think James would, would want it to be different because when James was here before. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. When, when James was, was here before, he was here with guys in their primes, right? That didn't need his mentorship. Eric Gordon didn't need James Harden's mentorship, right? Clint Capella, maybe, but like everybody else on the roster, they, they were independent of James, right? Like, in terms of like mm-hmm. their career development. If James is coming back, he needs to be ever present. He needs to set an example. He needs to be that kind of leader that, you know, I, I think he was a leader in Houston, but I think he needs to be even more so like displaying the kind of off the court yeah. stuff habits that you need to build. I think he needs, you need to be more of that if, you, if you're coming back. I think James knows that, right? I think that there's a possibility that we're just not giving so. him enough credit. Like the, the situations where he's been in, he hasn't had to be the mentor, right? Even in Philly, Embiid was a fully formed human being by the time he got there, right? That's not the case yeah. with Jalen Green. It's not the case with uh, whoever the Rockets draft this year or Jabari Smith, right? Like it's it's gonna be, it's gonna require his presence. It's gonna require his mentorship. So I think I think it's very possible that we don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the right way to look at it. And I'll and I'll be clear. Me personally, from everything that I know, I want James Harden back. It would be an amazing storyline to watch James Harden return to Houston. And for Rafael Stone, boy, I would love to see Rafael get the victory lap of getting all those future draft assets for Brooklyn and then having James Harden come back. I think that would be absolutely hilarious. And so I I, I do think that um, – there's a decent chance that it works out, and I personally, based on what I know, want it to work out. It's just I think Adam's probably right. Like 60-40 is sort of how I feel about it in terms of the likelihood that you know James makes it clear that he wants to come back. And while I think the odds are that in most of those scenarios, the Rockets find a way to make it work, I would leave just a small bit of wiggle room for, I don't know, some minority circumstance coming up that leads the Rockets to determine that it's not the best use of the cap space. I hope that's not the case. Based on what I know, it shouldn't be. I just would not entirely close the door to it. Fair enough. Okay. Well, uh, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Tell the people where you can find you on social media and your work. Yep. Uh, Ben Dubose on Twitter, uh, the Rockets Wire on Twitter, the Logger Line on Twitter. That's my regular podcast with Paolo Alge. You can also... Check out Locked on Rockets, where I do a show once a week with Jackson Gatlin. And then RocketsWire.USAToday.com for all of your daily Houston Rockets news coverage. All right, I'll talk to you down the line, man. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.